0: Let me uh, please tonight uh, rush to express uh, what is from my heart uh, sincere appreciation to Dr. Michael Didway uh, for this gracious invitation to share with you this evening. Uh, with me tonight is uh, one of our associate pastors for, for children and youth, uh, Jamal Johnson from Chicago. We just got off a plane and uh, and literally flew in uh, from the airport <laughs> to the seminary. And so uh, I don't make it a habit usually to cut it this close, uh, but uh, our travels have been just quite a bit lately. And so uh, when my daughter asked me to stay back today, I text Dr. Didway and said, I, I can't get there until the last minute uh, today. And so... Um, Thank you for the warm reception and for receiving essentially tonight what I hope is a better dad than a preacher. Um, Tonight, I'm not going to preach per se. I'm going to preach in the morning. Dr. Didway loves to toss these things at me, these themed addresses uh, at which I have to write something that I've never written before in the middle of having to write sermons every week and trying to get another manuscript ready for publication. So just remember the golden rule as you listen to me tonight. (laughs) Do unto Charlie dates as you want other audiences one day to do to you. Um, So I I request your uh, humble prayers and support. I'd, I must say, because there are many faces tonight uh, that mean so much to me uh, sitting out here, I don't want to call them all, but there, is, uh, there are a few. One of them you need to know. His name is Dr. Dwight Perry, and I'm not going to tell you on which side of the room Dr. Perry is sitting. But I was a senior at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign on my way to do a master's in human resource management and a juris doctorate on the backside. My brother uh, had just started law school at the University of Illinois, and I got a full ride to this program to do um, a master's in human resource management and then, and then a Juris Doctorate. They only let 18 students into the program a year, and uh, God gave me such grace and favor. But I was wrestling with a call to preach, and I had, I had decided, I'd said to the Lord, Lord, I'll, if you let me do this program, because Fortune 100 companies flew to campus to recruit from this school alone. If you let me do this program, I'll be the best support a pastor or preacher has ever had. I'll pay my tithes and offering faithfully. And, um, and yet I felt this tug on my heart. And in the providence of God, I was home for Easter uh, one Sunday. Permit me, please, just to share this with you. And that Sunday, preaching at our home church in Chicago was Dr. Dwight Perry. And in that one meeting, God changed the, the trajectory of my life. He said to me that day, God has called you to preach, and you need to prepare, and I'm going to show you where I think you need to prepare. I said, you don't understand. I, everything else is laid out for me already. I, I'm, I'm good. He said, no, just, just give, it a, give God a chance. And he took me to Trinity, and he made a phone call on my behalf to then-President Dr. Greg Waybright, and the rest, as they say, is history. One man God used to change the trajectory of my life and my ministry, and he's in the room tonight, and I want to say thank you, Dr. Perry, from the bottom of my heart. We appreciate you, man. We love you. Um, So... To all of the rest of you, my brothers and sisters, Dr. Greg Scharf, my first homiletics professor at Trinity, uh, just so so many faces. Dr. Joel Gregory, whose sermons I've preached around the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Don't uh, don't don't take that literally. I'm joking. But uh, whose whose mind is uh, As sharp as they come, it is my joy to speak with you all tonight. Will you join me, please, in a word of prayer? Our Father and our God, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, for the help and the hope that is ours in his name. I do ask tonight that you will give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart that I may in this moment tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. God, I, I confess my utter need for you, and I don't want to be afraid of the faces to whom I speak tonight. But I want to stand up and talk as your man in this moment. And so would you please put your word in my mouth and grant all of us listening ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. These are professors and academicians and leaders from around the country, and I thank you for the joy that I have to be able to say something, and I just pray that you'd make it meaningful to carry out your kingdom work in their varying stations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Two weeks ago today, Kirsty, Charlie, Claire, and I stood on the hallowed grounds of the McLeod Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a plantation that began in cotton-picking industry in 1858. You can imagine what I was feeling with our eight-year-old son, our six-year-old daughter, and Kirsty and I, for the first time, stepping foot on that particular plantation in that beautiful city as a chocolate preacher from Chicago. It is a majestic ground in a beautiful city. Trees that bend upon the waves of the wind structured on the anvil of time. Epic church structures surround this plantation in and out of Charleston, South Carolina. Beautiful cornices, structures of meticulous colonial architecture. A city whose history boasts both ingloriously and majestically. And there we stood on that plantation some 400 years after the first Dutch slave ship arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. There we stood, trying to reconcile the beauty of Charleston, her churches, and the horror of Charleston's slavery. As you may recall, through the port of Charleston came more Africans, more stolen Africans through the act of slavery than any other port in all of the colonies. It was that inhumane enterprise that Denmark Vesey called America's original sin. And there we stood on that plantation after having visited four churches built by Christian settlers who owned slaves. Charleston was the kind of city of which Frederick Douglass said that the church bell rung in concert with the slave auctioneer's bell. They rang at the same time. Standing there showing Charlie and Claire the quarters, the shanties, the shacks in which entire families lived, squeezed in like cotton they picked in the sacks that they filled. There we stood. I won't soon forget the tears Charlie started to cry at dinner. That evening, as he tried to wrap his mind around how little boys his age were snatched from their parents. Parents who loved them, who adored them, who only imagined what they would be like as they came of age. As he tried that evening at dinner to say, Dad, why would somebody do something like that? I won't soon forget it. There we stood on that plantation. Being a student of history, I was overcome by some strange overlaps of the American evangelical timeline, the time at which those grounds functioned by slave labor, the Great Awakening, that series of revivals starting in Northampton with Jonathan Edwards and trailing down the eastern seaboard by storm. The Great Awakenings, which gave birth to what we now know as evangelicalism in a modern sense. Evangelicalism. What a word. I'm not tempted to give it up just yet. I know everybody has their opinion about it. But evangelicalism. What a name. What a beautiful word. Euangelionism. People of good news. Gospel people. People marked by personal conversion and a deep personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Euangelionism. What a word. An emphasis on the personal, vertical Christianity of the individual believer, maybe too much so to the exclusion of the corporate outward practice toward one's fellow man. Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley preaching to crowds too large to number. I mean, who would not have wanted to be Edwards then, or Wesley or Whitfield then, preaching? Outdoor crusades, building orphanages, growing churches at lightning speed. Outdoor revival meetings at which horses would instinctively run their own masters to hear the preacher. I know many of you are too sanctimonious to appreciate what I just said. But you know it's a revival when the horses are running to hear the preacher and taking their masters to the open playing fields. Some of the most popular of American sermons were preached, delivered during that era. Who can forget sermons like Natural Men in a Dreadful Condition, Marks of a True Conversion, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, or God's Sovereignty in the Salvation of Men. Edwards himself was caught up in defining what signs were legitimate or were illegitimate of religious affection. Dismissing fluency and fervor, gyrations of the body and zeal and duty were no signs to Edwards, he said. Moral excellence, change of nature, conviction of certainty, these were the distinguishing signs of a truly gracious and holy affection. Yet, some of the brightest theology, I would submit to you tonight, emerged from that era. It was an era of soaring intellect in Christian doctrine. It was distinctive and made wonderful contributions to the narrative of what became American evangelicalism. In fact, Edwardsianism was the first indigenous theological movement in America Puritanism as we know it, they, they were understood as the heirs of the Protestant Reformation. And likewise, to emphasize this kind of personal salvation, this vertical work of the Spirit of God. And the question that haunted my mind as I stood there with Kirsty and Charlie and Claire at that plantation was... How do I reconcile in my mind the original sin of America with some of the bright theology that emerged from that era? How could slavery and orthodox theology coexist? This, this was a church that not only survived The horrors of slavery, how could the church bells ring at the same time and survive the horrors of slavery, is one question. But the larger question that plagued my mind is how did that very theology undergird the very institution of chattel slavery itself? Now, lest anyone accuse me tonight of being the angry black preacher, I'm not. Trust me, I would much rather talk to you about something else. That's why I asked Dr. Dewey, could I preach tonight rather than do this? But tomorrow morning, I'll get to preach. So lest anyone accuse me of being the angry black preacher who's unable to relinquish the debts of the past, let me say straight away that biblical theology has always urged the Christian to reckon both, with the slavery of sin and the sin of slavery. We who are preachers of the book, we who have a high view of scripture and a high Christology must wrestle with the cultural context out of which our evangelical theology emerges. But not only that, we need to check and recheck the biases from which we teach. The angles from which we preach, as many of them may linger into present day. And so tonight, with this themed address, I want to argue for the pastor theologian, for the preacher who needs to check his or her own context, who needs to be sensitive to his or her own biases, lest they bleed out as orthodoxy that results in terrible orthopraxis. Here's my main idea. I'm not taking a text tonight. I'm just giving you my idea. The preacher as theologian has the responsibility not only to rightly divide the word of truth, but also to rightly apply the character of God to the people of God. I'll say that one more time. Thank you for that one amen, Dr. Perry. The the preacher as theologian has the responsibility not only to rightly divide the word of truth, but also to rightly apply the character of God to the people of God. I know, as you know, Paul wrote those epic words to Timothy that he was to study to show himself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth what a beautiful imagery that is image that is don't you don't you think you you know already what that is this this image of tearing something along perforated lines this image of a doctor with a knife not making needless incisions but nice clean cuts of construction workers building a road, tearing down mountain rock and cutting down trees to get something straight. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, study to show yourself approved to God so that you don't have to be ashamed as you cut it straight. But the question that lingers is, is it possible to cut it straight straight? without treating your neighbor right. I recently read of a seminary, one that trains preachers, that refuses to discuss the tenets of black liberation theology. And maybe you're in here tonight, maybe I'm talking about your school. I don't know who you are. But it is as some have suggested, they say, of black liberation theology. I'm talking about the preacher-pastor as theologian. It is as some have suggested that black liberation theology is too ethnically focused a theology. I guess I can appreciate that. But I have one question for those who would say we don't want to talk about black theology in our classrooms. We don't want to discuss the history of black preaching and the gift of its theology to our churches. I got one question for you. If, If it's too ethnically focused a theology, that's fine, I guess. But here's my question. What about the rest of evangelical theology? What about your shade of color theology? Surely you don't think that mine is the only one with color. I agree. We don't have to agree with James Cone, a voice whose Echo still reverberates through the corridors of the academy. We we don't have to agree with him. And at some points, we should disagree with him. But yet, we should still ask the question, what made James Cone's theology necessary in the first place? What, What was it that prompted he and Henry Mitchell to have to write in the first place? That's a question worth asking and one to which I hope we can give some careful attention. Why is it that during the greatest recorded revival in America, 310,000 Africans were snatched from their native land and brought to the American colonies by 1750? How is it that the supremacy of God in both personal conversion and the erection of a national government as a theological tenet grew in prominence at the same time that the slave market grew? How is it that Reconstruction failed? And Jim Crow flourished in the same corners of the nation where leaders who attended some churches manned by some of our strongest pulpit heard the truth on a regular basis. How is it now that there seems to be a strange convergence between nationalism and Christianity in America? I want to propose some thoughts that the preacher within their personal and local context must steward their gospel proclamation by permitting the canon to interpret culture and society and not letting culture and society interpret the canon. I want to remind you that you and I have read many books, but there's only one book that has read us. There is only one book that tells us Who we are right from wrong and in versus out. And we cannot develop a culturally absent hermeneutic. We do not have that privilege in the days in which we live. But we can in conversation with Christian thinkers outside of our own cultural norm. Engage the biblical text and human history in a way that covers our blind spots. I want to propose That we need to develop a hermeneutic and a homiletic of suspicion. Not one that comes to the text questioning the authority of the text. Or demythologizing the content of the text. Or denying the truth of the text. But a suspicion. An inward suspicion. A suspicion of our own personal preference upon the interpretation we make and the application we take. Bruce Fields, of whom I am fond of quoting, not only because he was the second reader of my doctoral committee, but more so because he gave his career in the academy as a black man in white evangelical spaces. He said it this way, that the formulation of doctrine, the relationship between doctrines, and the application of doctrine lead to very different emphasis, depending on who's doing the theology. Hear what he's getting at. He says, many think that social, cultural, and religious factors do not affect theological formation. Many do not understand that the formulation of this doctrine and even exploring the relationships between the doctrine and then the commitment to applying that theology to life moves in different directions depending upon who's doing it. Who you are, in other words. Where we live. What privileges we enjoy or do not enjoy, what challenges we face or do not face all show up in our preaching. And it shows up in the way we do theology. And it has a corresponding impact on the emphasis that emerged from our theology. And I want to submit to you tonight that no single one of us in the room or single ethnic group in the room is free from that. We all have that challenge. All forms of preaching are in some way of affected by the color of the theology we practice. Are y'all still in here with me? Give me six more minutes. I'll be out of your hair. The influence, impression, and subtleties of the preacher's theology will be felt in his or her preaching. That means that the application of the sermon in theory or in practice is likewise shaped by the preacher's theology. For that reason, The work of our preaching is informed by how the preacher does theology. For instance, I practice theology from the black experience. I know everybody wants to be black, but God didn't make us all black. A few of us got that privilege. This fact is inescapable. And in some circles, it creates a kind of scholarly discomfort when I don't think it should. It should create a humility in our work of theology. I once asked one of my systematic theology professors, not you, of course, uh, Dr. Ken, we were in the homiletics department there. I was once asked by this professor if all people could do black theology. I understood what he was asking. Implicit in that question, however, was a kind of hidden assertion that all theology is somehow neutral or devoid of cultural influence. And I thought to myself, what a, what a privileged question. And so not wanting to fail the class, I deleted my response on that paper. But I'll tell you what it asks. Can all people do your theology? For all theology is affected by our cultural lenses, good or bad. And, and so I want to propose, before I get the, t- toward the end of, of what I'm seeking to argue toward tonight, that, that you should do something. When was the last time you had your students read preachers and listen to preaching distinctly different from their cultural context? When was the last time you, in shaping a sermon or presenting an idea, included voices of persons outside of your cultural norms? All I can tell you is I used to be one of your students, and I would to God, from that time ago, that my professors had done more of that. I would to God that my professors had come to see that there's a way to suggest what's normative without calling it normative. That the absence of other cultural voices in the classroom and in the shaping of a congregation tend to make one culture's dominant theological emphasis as normative across the board. But that's just not true, is it? That kind of theology ultimately can lead to slaveholding. But because it is possible to get the text right and the application of God's character wrong. It is possible to read the text in its context and to misread our context for application. There are many examples we can use to draw this out, but I think Edwards and Whitfield within early evangelicalism help us to view this challenge of the preacher as theologian. How might we have the best of orthodoxy and the worst of corporate social orthopraxis. It happens because we abandon the line of scripture for the advancement of and protection of our dearly held but flawed privileges. It happens because we think we will lose something by letting others hold the microphone. But friends, you and I, I want to suggest, do not have the best of orthodoxy until all of God's people speak. Until people who have lived on the margins, endured suffering, and overcome shame get to testify about their understanding of what the Bible has to say about God. And so I I admit tonight that I think we benefit from a look at theology from minority contexts. I'll suggest my own. It may be helpful for me to suggest to you that black theology is not heresy, it might actually be a gift to the academy. And let me rush to define black theology for you, because I know some of you have ideas in your own mind, but you've not heard mine. Black theology is a practice of biblical theology that arises from the black religious and cultural experience in America. I'll say it again. It's simple, but I want you to catch it. Black theology is a practice of biblical theology that arises from the black religious and cultural experience in America it is not a theology that paints God black. It is rather a way of doing theology that interprets God's word through the lens of a people systematically and intentionally marginalized by the political and racial structure of the United States of America. And I wanna suggest to you that if you think that you have all of what's needed to round out the church's theology in your own orientation, Then you're missing the more majestic mosaic of God. Our theology focuses on liberation. Liberation is a dominant theme, by the way, in the Bible. Yeah, I'm praying, God, give me grace. Our theology does focus on liberation, but just in case you hadn't read it, liberation is a dominant theme explored throughout the Bible. And any Christian, by the way, who seeks to diminish the bright light of liberation from the scriptures, especially for their own selfish gain, in one sense undermines the efficacy of their own salvation. In like manner, liberation is not to be so emphasized that the theme of liberation causes the interpreter to rip scripture from its appropriate context, which then leads to a misappropriation of its application. But, but I want to suggest not trying to read liberation into everything is one way that keeps the oppressed from hating their oppressors and ultimately keeps the oppressed from oppressing their oppressors. The compassion, the mercy, and the providence of God eases out a view of reading the scripture through the lens of liberation. I want to suggest even that this is where I think James Cone went wrong. He had a difficult time harmonizing the omnipotence of God with the omnibenevolence of God. He had a difficult time trying to reconcile how God could be good and in providence let his people be enslaved. I'll be the first to tell you tonight, I don't have answers to those questions. But what I do know is that God is good. And I'm not going to let what I don't know shake what I do know. I do know that all things work together for the good of them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. I do know that in the fullness of time, God will make every wrong right. I do know that the crooked places will be made straight. I do know that the rough places will be made plain. I do know that every valley will be exalted and every mountain will be brought low. And I do know that the ground at the cross is level. I've decided not to let what I don't know shake what I do know. You and I might benefit even in the classroom from reading a minority theology. And encouraging your students and your pastors and even you in your own preaching to benefit from the rich voices of a context other than your own, might that give you and I a deeper understanding of God's work for and among his people? I'll tell you what I think it might do. Preaching and conversation with other theologians outside of our own context will give us a greater appreciation for the breadth. Of God's character. It will challenge us to resist favoritism, to dismantle privilege, and to identify injustice. It will make us more willing to invite those unheard voices in the confines of our own classroom and congregations to teach us what we think we already know. And in no way am I suggesting that we develop a kind of uh, canonical cultural homiletic where culture and experience comes first. I think James Cone got it wrong there, but I also think Jonathan Edwards got it wrong there too. What I am suggesting is that we develop a canonical cultural homiletic that takes into serious consideration the intersection of Scripture with the sociological. How Scripture interprets the systems of our society, and how we can ultimately achieve both love of God and love of neighbor. We need to know what the Bible says. I'm in no way trying to argue against what Scripture says, but I do want to say we need to know what the Bible says. And what John says in 1 John chapter 2 is that we cannot say that we know God and we do not keep his command. We need to know both what the Bible says about soteriology and about the love of neighbor. We need to know what Scripture says not to answer merely the key Christological question, but we also need to know what Scripture says to answer the key social questions. We need James 1, 22 through 25. You know what James says in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. He says, hearing and not doing is like going up to a mirror and when you walk away, you forget what you look like. This is what Dr. Kevin Van Hooser calls spiritual amnesia. We need scripture to lay the groundwork for our doctrine. Because when we get the Bible right. And we apply the truth of God appropriately to our own context and with our own people. We get to discern the ways of God as we preach and urge our congregations to know him more fully through our preaching. And that's a gift of reading theology of a different color. One other benefit is that you and I learn how to handle human suffering from reading and listening to black preaching and black theology. Human suffering is witnessed, by the way, throughout the canon, especially in the liberation passages through the scripture where men and women are being murdered and children are tortured. And and those inflicting the terror often claim God language. And and we learn even in our own American history that, that there emerged a people who were brought to these shores against their will, trained in some of our churches and never rejected the Christian doctrine and theology that they brought with them from West Africa and that they encountered here in the 13 colonies. But without a biblical foundation, we will resort to other sources for our own comfort. I I wanna say to people uh, who, like one well-intending professor said to me, questions about what's wrong with the black church, I simply had to say, let's thank God there still is a black church. When you look at the ways in which doctrine and scripture were manipulated, here are a people who endured human suffering, believing that one day God's will would be done. Seeing one day that people like me would be standing in places like this, talking to people like you. They believed that God would turn the tables. And so they did not turn to other things to bring them comfort. They turned to the God of their fathers, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far along the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. That's what they wrote. That's a kind of theology. A kind of theology that examined real life issues, impressed by culture and sustained by government. That's a kind of theology that examined those issues and said, nonetheless, that they were going to take the word of God to make themselves fit to live in our world today. That's what I'm aiming to do in my corner of Chicago. Is to help our church get fit to run. You do know that these are running times, don't you? I'm trying to hold off till tomorrow to preach, but I feel like sneaking a preach. You do know these are running times, right? You do know that the wind is against us now. You do know that our nation is growing darker by the moment and the month. You do know that now is the time for the clearest, most clarion voices of Christian doctrine to emerge and not only proclaim truth, but prepare the truth, the church to run with that truth. Now is the time where we don't need merely to print more systematic theology books. We don't need merely to teach more classes in the academy, but we need to prepare our students and our churches for an unfriendly America. For a nation that is hell-bent against the virtues of Jesus Christ. A friend of mine, recently retired from the NFL, having played 10 seasons and arguably 8 of them as the best running back for the Chicago Bears since Walter Payton, shared with me some of his fitness routine. And My goodness, this guy is just pounds of muscle upon pounds of muscle. My brother joked with him the other Sunday and said, man, I think I could have took you at your time in the NFL. And just the look he gave my brother was enough to get me to exit the conversation. He started to share with us some of his fitness routine, the kind of conditioning required to play as an elite athlete in the NFL. He described defying fatigue and overcoming mental limits. He he says it was a strain unlike many other things they had to be able to run. But not only to run, even as a running back, he had to be able to catch. And not only to catch, even as a running back, he had to be able to block. And not only to block, but he had to be able to take a hit. And as he started to explain these things to me, I said to him, stop right there, bruh, that'll preach. And I try to preach it to y'all tonight. We like him have to be able in our culture to run. But not only to run, we've got to be able to catch. And not only to catch, but we've got to be able to block and God knows we've got to be able to take a hit. And as we walk through this, I wondered about how many of those who sit under my preaching on a weekly basis are fit to run. How many of them can run even when life squeezes them in? How many of them are fit to run to win? How many of them can take a hit and get back on up? How many of them can stand the course with endurance because the race is not given to the swift or to the strong, but to the man or woman who can endure to the very end? And that, friends, that, friends, is what the pastor as theologian has to do. We got to equip the saints with the biblical vision of God that makes them fit for the age In which we live. God be praised. Let me invite you to pray with me tonight. Our father and our God. Thank you. Again. And I pray tonight that you will help us. In this space tonight. Change America. By the way we train. Emerging preachers. Give us courage and confidence, maybe even to do what we've never seen done before. But Would you make of these leaders, these homileticians, these professors and deans, the kind of men and women who can spot preachers in their classroom, who will change their churches and their cities, And would you use the nuggets that they drop, the information that they give to actually transform lives to the end, Lord God, where more will have the experiences that I've had to stand up in front of your people and declare the truth without shame for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.